Welcome once again to Clinical Realities, a podcast miniseries from The Lancet Rheumatology, where we explore the realities of rheumatology care and research in challenging settings and amongst underserved and neglected patient populations across the globe. I'm David Liu, a rheumatologist and clinical pharmacologist from Melbourne, Australia, and in this episode of Clinical Realities, we'll be focusing in on my own country, Australia, and the shocking problem of the health of its Indigenous people. In rheumatology, it's hard to look past the problem of lupus in Aboriginal Australians, in whom it is two to four times more common than it is for other Australians. Of course, lupus care in general is often far from straightforward, but the problems run far deeper for Aboriginal patients with lupus in a multi-pronged way. Biology is an issue, but the social determinants and cultural barriers are critical and deep-set. Now, of course, at this point, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the part of Melbourne on which I am right now, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. But I also had the great honour of being a guest of the Yolngu people of East Arnhem Land, working there for a few months in a remote Aboriginal community called Gapawiak when I was a junior doctor. Now, as a rheumatologist, I wanted to share with the world some of the health problems that the Aboriginal people of Australia face. Australia's Indigenous people, the Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, may have had two of the oldest living cultures in the world, but they have been subject to much injustice since European colonisation. In fact, it wasn't until 1967 that Aboriginal Australian people were first recognised as actual people in the Australian Constitution and finally were counted in the Australian Census as people. Until the 1970s, in fact, government policies led to many Aboriginal children being forcefully removed from their parents by the authorities, and many were placed in institutions where they were deprived of all access to their culture and language and and often subject to abuse. This stolen generation, as it is known, casts a long shadow over the relationship between Aboriginal Australia and the rest of the country. When I was in East Arnhem Land, I saw some of the worst health outcomes that I could have thought imaginable. In fact, there's a gap of eight years' life expectancy between Aboriginal Australians and the national median, and in many Aboriginal communities, it is even worse. The connection to country, to community, is is legal and spiritual in Aboriginal cultures, which means many are obliged to live in communities, remote communities, far from services. So what does this mean for lupus care and Aboriginal patients? Today we'll be talking to three clinicians from Australia's vast and largely remote Northern Territory, where many Aboriginal Australians live, often speaking one of the over 250 Aboriginal languages as their first language. Dr Greta Lindenmeyer is a general internal medicine physician who works out of the Royal Darwin Hospital in Australia's top end, at the tropical north end of the Northern Territory, where she is heavily involved in lupus care, and I asked her, how is it different for Aboriginal patients with lupus? It's very different, David. So I guess there's a number of facets to that. The first one in my work particularly would be the remoteness that we face looking after our patients. So I'm predominantly an outpatient general physician. I do a lot of outreach and clinic-based work. And a lot of my patients live 20 hours drive away And so that dramatically influences the care I give them. Just one sort of specific example I have is I look after a young woman with lupus who has severe ITP. She's been in ICU, I think, three times already this year with platelets of zero. She lives in a community called Nooka, and she's got a really important job there looking after um, kind of coordinating the care of kids 
at risk of being taken from their parents. So we want her in Nooka as much as we can because we know she's really important in that community. In Nooka, you can't get a platelet count because of the delays to transport. So that's obviously a huge challenge. How often do I bring her out of community knowing how important she is there, balancing, you know, with the safety of wanting to know what this, this poor lady's platelets are? So I think that just that remoteness, the availability of tests, there's essentially no remote communities that I visit where you can get a reliable ESR. And deciding sort of when do you want to bring someone to Darwin, how important is it to see them face-to-face, how much can you do on telehealth, how much can you case conference with their primary care practitioner and still provide safe care. So I think that's a real cultural shift from just come to my outpatient clinic at 2.30 this afternoon and we'll get everything done. And I think, yeah, I find that challenge really interesting to navigate and to kind of look at it, um, managing people with lupus in conjunction with their GP and in a primary care setting to try and balance those, those dilemmas. So that, that's remoteness and that doesn't even take into account the cultural differences and challenges. And I think, I think for anyone, lupus is quite a hard illness to understand. Certainly for my medical students it is, um, let alone for people who you don't speak English, have a completely different understanding of the human body than we do. I find that getting people to know what their illness is is just incredibly difficult. And I've, I remember one time I spent about 30 minutes with someone, with an interpreter and an Aboriginal liaison officer, trying to sort of, you know, my very best that I thought was my best to explain what lupus was. And at the end she said, okay, I've got worms. <laughs> And that, I think, just really illustrates, like, what a challenge to just get to that basic understanding it is. And it, it's obviously not the same as well. The lupus story for Yolnu people is not the same as it is for Tiwi people. And it's we really um, don't have a lot of resources yet to, to do that well. Well, I think the all around the world, even in, in rich world, perfect settings, lupus care is really challenging for patients. There's a lot that's going on and it's quite intimidating to face. What do you think is is particularly challenging for Aboriginal patients with lupus, especially in those remote settings? What do you think is the most confronting thing for them? Look, I think a lot of people that I look after have had relatives who've died and they associate coming to care and coming to Darwin for care particularly with a really bad outcome. And there's a lot of fear a lot of and a lot of that is from misunderstanding and it it definitely means people don't want to come and see me and uh, we often are in a place where we don't know about these women young you know predominantly women until they're in our ICUs you know in crisis we have we unfortunately have many many women every year who die in ICU young women with young families who just haven't had that lupus care before a catastrophic event Dr. Stephen Brady is a rheumatologist as well as the head of adult medicine at Alice Springs Hospital, the major hospital in Australia's Red Centre, the dry and arid south of the Northern Territory. He told me about his practice and how rheumatological care differs for lupus patients there. Well, first thing is I think that there is a, a lot more of it and I don't think we yet really know the extent of how much, but it is much more prevalent than anywhere else. All our trainees who come and visit from major centres say, wow, I've never seen so much lupus. 
And, you know, recently I went and did outreach in a community of less than 500 patients, but half a day was taking up seeing patients with lupus. So the prevalence is really, really high. So I think that's one of the things. The second thing is I think the context that we're dealing with with other competing health demands, mm. but also lots of other problems which are likely to come along with lupus. So there's a really, really high infection rate. And so that's a significant, probably a contributing factor, but also a complicating factor. So presentations of lupus with crusted scabies, for instance, are not uncommon. And some of the conditions that you would not see elsewhere also come into your differential diagnosis of your young people who come in with an acute inflammatory disease. Is it acute rheumatic fever? Is it disseminated gonococcal infection? Is it lupus? Some patients seem to manage to get all of them. <laughs> well, I think you allude to the fact that these patients already as they, as they are, have a substantial comorbidity burden. I mean, I remember from northeast Arnhem Land seeing patients in their 20s with ST elevation, myocardial infarctions and, and blood sugar controls with HbA1cs regularly in the 10, uh, over 10%. I'm sure that's exactly the same in Alice. It must be hard to manage those issues as well as the lupus at the same time with the treatments yeah. we have. and with It certainly animals. is. And yeah. it's always uh, your concern whenever you're immunosuppressing people in a, an area with a very high infectious disease burden that you're going to increase that. Although active lupus itself, of course, is going to increase their risk and susceptibility of infection. And then, yes, steroids and diabetes, really a confounding factor. And you have people who are relatively young and you're trying to work out whether their kidney disease is due to their diabetes or is due to their lupus. And sometimes it's that can be a really severe challenge. So there's the burden of illness and there's also the degree of both socio, socioeconomic disadvantage but also the mobility of the patients which make care for them. Also, more and more challenging. Absolutely. Well, maybe you can illustrate a little bit of that for our international audience. I mean, the socioeconomic challenges seem to pervade all the different challenges within the care of the whole lupus patient in Alice and everywhere else for Aboriginal patients. Yeah. So one of the things is, is, is the socioeconomic sort of factors, are they actually contributing to the disease burden? And that's, I, I think... It almost certainly does. Mm. But then, yeah, looking after themselves is often not the highest priority when you have other conflicting challenges every day. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about patients who uh, very frequently live, I would imagine, in overcrowded circumstances. I mean, that's yes. part of the basis of that rheumatic fever, which is so prevalent that you mentioned, some of the highest rates in the world. Uh, uh, overcrowding, um, but financial insecurity, food insecurity, yeah. moving around because of both obligations, but also sometimes because of conflict and other things. So patients, uh, it can be challenging to work out where they are and then to try to fit in their healthcare around having to move around to meet many obligations can be very, very challenging. And 
Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, a lot of people might look at the Australian public health system and say uh, we have, to some extent, universal health care and that we provide base level of care for people. But why is care for our Aboriginal patients in your practice um, so challenging like that? I mean, I think you've alluded to some of the reasons already. Uh, yes, and access to care really does fluctuate. Many communities, it isn't available all the time. Over the last summer, we've had to close clinics in quite a few communities. The number of GP visits has been substantially diminished and GPs may not be there often. And if they are, they're then often overwhelmed and there can be a lack of continuity. So, so continuity of primary health care is sort of not necessarily guaranteed. You know, I'm the sole rheumatologist here for 1,500 kilometres in any direction, so if I'm not here, that also can interfere with the care that people can provide. Access to diagnostic testing can be challenging, but access to just ongoing regular continuity of care is difficult. And we have people who actually not only are mobile, but they're mobile between the Northern Territory and other states and then are often on the very remotest communities of those other states. So getting access to healthcare in those circumstances is extremely challenging. So the other thing I'm really interested in are the cultural challenges that uh, come about from Aboriginal patients in a society which doesn't always uh, accommodate them as well as it should. So how do you find that the cultural differences impair and impact the care that you deliver to your lupus patients as a rheumatologist? Well, cultural differences is a, <laughs> encompasses many, many, many things. <laughs> but uh, even if there wasn't cultural differences, there's language differences, mm. there's communication challenges, and also there's health literacy concerns. So that's, and that's before you add different worlds systems of belief and for lupus I think that becomes even more challenging because uh, it's difficult enough to explain to medical students let alone someone who actually speaks a different language and has different health beliefs yeah and I think some of the manifestations can be so challenging and nebulous and that both making diagnosis explaining the disease explaining the treatment process and then getting through that journey is really, really challenging. I mean, it's already hard enough, I think, with ongoing care in lupus patients in the best settings, let alone with that. Yes. Uh, yes. So, I mean, what are some of those uh, health beliefs that do play into your common care with uh, Aboriginal lupus patients? Well, there's not an expert in the <laughs> health beliefs, but obviously a very holistic thing and... Mm connection to country, looking after country are very important. Mm. But there's also, you know, some people believe that there's a role for sorcery in ill health and, uh, you know, and certainly some of our lupus patients who have really profound illness with lots of weight loss, et cetera, certainly some of them have had believed that they've had sorcery placed upon them. So what do you think the biggest things that we can do to try and bridge that gap with 
Aboriginal Australia and its lupus patients? What are the kind of things that we can be doing as a rheumatology community? I think uh, dealing with the problems of health literacy, et cetera, really comes with an educational system which is functioning and well-supported, but I think also having time with patients, having access to interpreters, having access to good educational sort of materials are all really important, but also just having time to develop trust because I think trust is also a really important thing which underpins all healthcare interactions. And in a situation where the healthcare, you know, has not always been good and there's, there's also many other factors in history which means that trust is uh, not always there and it certainly needs to be earned. I mean, as you've uh, alluded to there, it seems like really that there are a lot of structural challenges which really get in the way of you delivering yep. your best care and yes. and really drive the health outcomes for our Aboriginal lupus yes. patients. Yeah. there are. But, you know, it's also important that you just also earn trust by being the best healthcare system that you possibly can. It's really a perfect storm of things that makes it hard for Aboriginal patients with lupus in the Northern Territory, their disease, but also their comorbidities, the cultural differences, and bridging that health literacy gap with a trust that has been so very hard to find in the centuries that white Australia has interacted with Aboriginal Australia. Anika Paolucci is a proud Iwaja woman from the Coburg Peninsula, northeast of Darwin. She's also an Aboriginal health practitioner at Royal Darwin, working with lupus patients and others in the Dancers Transition Program. As an emerging Indigenous leader, she's had to bridge the needs and expectations of two very different worlds to create that bridge that Aboriginal lupus patients in the Northern Territory necessarily have had to cross. I asked her what it's like for patients on that journey. Look, I guess, David, when I think about people receiving their treatment, I'm, I'm taken back to one of my very first patients when I first started. Most of all, it's allowing the grieving process to happen and then really buckling down and having those strong conversations that help help patients to really understand and have that comprehension around these. Really, they are, for, for our patients, are very life-threatening and can have really poor outcomes. So... What, how I try and really connect with my patients is to just break down every single medical word that's ever been mentioned to them and give them words that, that might help them to understand. And then I guess around that, I try really hard with goal setting, planning, and then supporting um, patients. Because like what, what people don't realize, David, is when you bring patient out of community, yeah, that whole community is their support basis. In that space, they are supported by that community with their food security, with their housing security, with their financial security, with their health security, and those sort of things come through. And then we bring them out of community and allow them to have one escort in the hope that that may provide some support. But then what happens at the end is then we have to support two patients who have been removed from that community-based support. So really trying to get all of that holistic care up front for patients is so vital because if you can't overcome all of those other social determinants, 
they can't concentrate on the health aspect. Absolutely. But I mean, I think we know that this is important for all patients to deal with that holistic approach, but um, I imagine it's incredibly important, um, particularly for our Aboriginal patients. Perhaps for an international audience, you can tell us a little bit about what that community, that connection to community and country, why that is so important to the essence of our Ab- Aboriginal patients. Well, I, I love that because it's, uh, David, for me, we come from our mother country, we come from our earth. So it's really important that when we are brought away from there, whether it's for, you know, access to services, regardless of what it is, it's almost like that is becomes an illness itself because that country provides us with so much care and history and that's where, that's where we belong. So somebody coming out from that space and then being brought into an area that is very concrete, very cold, and very disconnects. It's hard for us to find our way in there. And I think as well, for an international audience, uh, well, I think even for an Australian audience, a lot of people aren't aware of the social determinants of health that Aboriginal patients in the top end frequently face, the, yeah. the kind of extent of Perhaps you can tell us a little bit, little bit about what your patients face on an everyday basis and how that affects their yeah, lupus and chronic disease care. Yeah. So I get when, when these, I talk about the social determinants all the time, but it's more around the, the holistic approach because I guess when we think about trying to support that and, and for example, a, a patient that I, my first patient that I started with um, treatment, she was 900 kilometres away from Darwin. There was one store, there is a GP there maybe, four times a week, maybe, if they can get out there. Sometimes it's less than that. And sometimes it's just done by remote. And there is no way that somebody can get a full understanding of having contact maybe once or a year with whether it's a specialist service. And also going to the health centre as well is really difficult because there's a lot of trust that sometimes comes in these spaces. And and if they have not a great interaction, and they're less likely to go there as well. There's, I, there's this whole thing around shaming and growling with patients and, and communication. We know David is such a big thing, regardless of the chronic condition that the patient may be um, having. So it's really important that we take our time and slow down our talk so that patients living 900 kilometres away in the desert space coming into a saltwater country has time to adjust and find their space to sit in. That bridge of communication, it does have that such a difficult history over the um, time that's come before. Can you tell us a little bit about how that reflects through to today? Because I don't think that our international may realise how much it influences um, the way we still live today. Thanks. Thanks for that question, David, because it's a really important one for me and one that I try to remind my work colleagues of every day. We often forget how young our country is. And so I actually had a patient last year that who had just had her first interaction with me and the renal service. But when I opened her medical chat, I found her half-caste card in there. So for people who don't know, that was the way through the White Australia policy of segregating Aboriginal people according to their skin colour. And that is something that causes a lot of pain for everybody coming into this space, even my own mother and brother and sister born under the Flora and Fauna Act, so weren't considered human beings. And so that's really very distressing, you know, to come through and and have to continually remind people about the distrust that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have with the health service. When we're trying to build 
with, with that, knowing that trust is so important to the way that we deliver holistic care for our patients. I mean, where do you think the, the gaps exist in bridging Aboriginal patients with lupus and other chronic conditions to the health, the, the broader health service and to specialists? I mean, there are so many challenges that exist in trying to create those connections. Yeah. Look, I guess I'm an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health practitioner, yeah, which means I do have that. I'm able to walk in two worlds and am accepted by community and accepted by, you know, my regular space as well. And so it's really important. And I guess for people to understand that Aboriginal health practitioners, we already have the words. And so we can explain these incredibly complex conditions and treatment processes and allow a space for them to think and ask questions. Quite often I see patients when they come in and there's this fear-based education that is given. An example that I give um, for myself, David, is when I first came in and was diagnosed with um, diabetes, I was explained that, you know, if I don't do anything, the leg that I had a blood clot in would probably be the first one cut off within the next 10 years. Well, and I mean, it, there's a lot of good intention in, in, in the health system, but often without the nuance of knowing how to actually, without the nuance of actually thinking about how we actually deliver that to our patients who live in a, in a different, uh, well, especially when they live in a different cultural context. Yes. Well, I'm, you know, if you're coming into the country and English is your second language, you're quite often afforded the ability to learn real English and Aboriginal people were never afforded this. So we speak a very broken English. And so trying to find the words to explain whatever it is, for example, everybody speaking English in a consult that I was in and was asked, the patient was asked if she had any psychosocial issues. Immediately that patient looked at me because that is definitely not language that she would use in any shape or form. So then I explained to her, hey, just checking if you have any big family worries. Yeah. And her husband had just passed away. So, you know, it's really because sometimes when you're in that medical profession and you're constantly reading these giant academic words and speaking in this academic speak, you forget that not every talk, everybody talks that way. So really trying to find actual words and utilize, utilize your health practitioners and plead for the love of God, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and any interpreter to get the message across properly because there's no way that anybody can learn in not their first language. So what do you think that needs to change fundamentally with the way that we interact with Aboriginal patients generally when they have their when they have chronic conditions like lupus? What can we do to try and make this a little bit better? You've got to go slow. You can't rush everything. And we've got to bring it down. When I'm talking with patients, I guess that's the biggest thing, David, having the correct language and utilizing the correct resources. Yeah. Using Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health practitioners in every shape or form. There are situations that, you know, and, and we say privilege, but it's not. It's just, but that's what it comes down to. Yeah, it's a privilege. And so, and when I talk about survival, and I touched on it a little bit before, yeah. there is a survival mentality that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have to go through every day, every day. And while the whole of Australia and the whole of the world may have this thing of Aboriginal people getting handouts and that sort of stuff, we've really got to bring it back because 
I did a birth registration for a patient who was 67 years old. Just let that sink in. A birth registration. Yeah. So when we start thinking about how we can change things, it's just got to be the basic fundamentals and it's our attitudes towards everything. There are no signs where I am in any, you know, sort of larakia, yulungimata. We might have information available in those languages, but it's not in our first space. And I think for First Nations people, quite often are not treated as First Nations people. So that is something that we have to look at. The way that we interact, the way that we talk to people and the language and the tone that we use. Quite often people will talk about, you know, oh, can't make too much eye contact, can't do all of these things. But mostly it's just sitting down next to somebody and having a gentle conversation and utilising, and I say it again, your Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health practitioners and utilising your interpreter service to try and get these, all of these information across to the patients. So I asked Onika, what did she want from us as a rheumatology community to keep in mind thinking about the Aboriginal patients with lupus and other chronic conditions that she sees? Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people were the first scientists. We are incredibly smart people, but you need to talk to us in a, in a language that we understand so that it benefits us. And everything that, everything that we do has to be meaningful. Yeah. And, and we need to be able to have a space where the consented process, whether it's just even talking is still something that is is thought out before we just leap into something, yeah. And also making sure that when you're talking with a patient, making sure that they've got support there, yeah. All the time they need support from Aboriginal health practitioners, from interpreter service and from family. Please include family in all of these things because when a health condition affects one person, it affects the entire community. And when you remove that person from community, whether it's to come for treatment, for four weeks, six weeks, or the rest of their life, as with some of our dialysis patients, really know that the impact and the not being able to get back to community affects their entire spirit. Even me, when I don't get back to my country, I feel incredibly nauseous when I think about not being there for a long time. And it's heartbreaking. And when people can't get there, and when there's a lack of understanding it just means that that person is probably not going to have the best outcome or the best interaction with the service. So I put it to Dr. Brady and Dr. Lindenmeyer. What can we as lupus health providers and as a rheumatology community do better? Dr. Brady again, rheumatologist from Alice Springs. Well, we're, we're about to sort of begin some further research, which will probably help probably to find that whether there's anything else different about the Indigenous population in terms of the pathogenesis by, you know, looking at biomarkers, looking at the genetics and, and to see, you know, how unique this patient population is. Mm. Other thing that we're dealing with in Central Australia is that it's uncertain whether HW1 may have a role in autoimmune disease. It certainly does have a role in the pathogenesis of some autoimmune diseases. It's prevalent up to 50% in some of our communities here. I don't think there's going to be a strong overlap with lupus, but it may in some individuals be also a driver of 
autoimmune diseases. And Dr. Lyndon Meyer from Darwin. Look, I think the biggest outcome change will be not something that um, us as individual clinicians can do, but it's really um, addressing some of the social determinants of health and at a, on a bigger uh, level. I have a woman who uses rituximab to keep her really aggressive, predominantly hematological lupus under control. It works beautifully, but then she goes back to a community. She lives in a house with 18 other people. She always gets scabies, infected scabies, and she doesn't have secure access to food. We've got her on a supplement program, but there's hungry kids in the house. They take all the supplements. You know, you're in this really unique position in the Northern Territory where I have access to all the drugs and all the tests that we have in the first world, and yet I don't have as much influence on these really, you know, core foundational health things like secure housing and food. So I think, you know, big picture, that will improve lupus care as we improve those things for our Indigenous patients. I think there's a physician who's worked in Catherine for a long time. So he's actually now an Alice, Simon Quilty, and he always talks about sometimes what we do as physicians in this field is we're icing a cake that's not made. And I think that's a really nice analogy because it, it truly is what we kind of are doing. But I think, you know, aside from that, what we can do as individual clinicians is develop more flexible patient-centred models of care. And that's sort of what I'm trying to do with my lupus clinic is acknowledge that I don't have to see everyone every three months. I don't have to examine their joints, which, you know, as a non-rheumatologist, as a general physician, it's probably a bit easier for me to come to than for some rheumatologists. And I can sort of work on providing a care with, with their GP or even the nurse in the clinic and be just a little bit more flexible and patient-centred in, in my approach, do things a bit differently to work with my patients. I think research is, is really lacking and that um, here in Darwin and in analysis well, we're trying to become more involved in the Australian Lupus Registry and the Indigenous Lupus Project. I think we are when we treat our patients, we're applying evidence that we isn't you know, isn't derived from them and often doesn't apply to them. Infections are a massive thing here for us, particularly in the wet season. Every patient I treat would have probably at least one underlying condition like latent tuberculosis, chronic hepatitis B, strongyloides infection. And so the infection immunosuppression balance is completely different to my non-Indigenous patients here. So I think, yeah, research in the field, more adaptive models of care and, of course, addressing the social determinants for Indigenous health in general are the big things that will make a difference. I think you really enjoy your job and it's really inspiring to see. What do you think brings you the greatest joy out of delivering lupus care to Aboriginal patients? So I do. I, I think when it works and when I get a good relationship with young women, um, it's incredibly rewarding. I think uh, what I see as a general physician working in rheumatology is treating, for example, debilitating joint pain that means a woman can't look after her baby or a disfiguring skin rash that means a young woman wants to just stay in her house all day. There is immediate reward with that, which, you know, when I'm treating diabetes or hypertension, I just don't see. And I think when you can provide that benefit to the patient and it's clear to them that it's from your medicines and your care, 
it's a really great bridge to involve them in their general care and engage them with the hospital system. So I think that's a wonderful thing about rheumatology. <laughs> you really do provide instant benefit to people. And I think once you've got that relationship with someone and you have managed to, you know, improve their rash or improve their joint pain, you get this wonderful long-term relationship with the patient and, you know, they allow you into their culture, which is such a privilege, you know, with this the oldest living culture in the world. And you have a lady come in, she hands you her baby and tells you what she's been fishing for or hunting on the weekend and about this ceremony and that ceremony. And that's a real privilege for me to have an insight into that culture, to be allowed into her world in that way. So, yeah, it's incredibly rewarding when it works and when we can get there. On that inspiring note, thanks for joining us again for another episode of Clinical Realities by The Lancet Rheumatology. And tune in next month for more stories about unmet need in rheumatology.